0: How essential are the essential fatty acids? This is a critical review of the requirement for polyunsaturated fatty acids. When I began this project, it was to investigate the claims of the physiologist Ray Peet, who claimed that the essential fatty acids are not essential and that the experiments suggesting that they are essential are a result of other nutrient deficiencies and a hypersensitivity of thyroid hormone by removing the suppressive effects of polyunsaturated fatty acids on thyroid hormone. I dove deep into all of the relevant research and I found on the one hand that I believe that the essential fatty acids are definitely essential, but on the other hand, modern textbooks and reviews make serious errors in exaggerating how much we need and in emphasizing the plant oils as essential when it's actually the forms found in animal fats that are physiologically essential, meaning that they need to be in our bodies to prevent a deficiency disease. Nowadays, in 2022, I would clearly distinguish between physiological essentiality, that something needs to be in our bodies and dietary essentiality that something needs to be in our diet. But through this report, you'll learn why the fatty acids found in plant oils are neither. The fatty acids found in animal fats are physiologically essential and not necessarily dietarily essential depending on the overall context of the rest of our diet, as well as factors beyond our control like genetics, and other factors like medications as well. This report was initially published in 2008 for my paid subscribers only. It has been out of print for years, but I am now re-releasing it in audio and text format with interspersed reflections where I update the material where I think it's warranted. I'll first read the summary, and then I'll summarize some of my updated reflections that are interspersed throughout. This is the summary. Current reviews and textbooks call the omega-6 linoleic acid and the omega-3 alpha-linolenic acid quote-unquote essential fatty acids, which we will abbreviate throughout this as EFA, or in the plural, EFAs. These current reviews and textbooks cite the EFA requirement as 1-4% to of calories. Research suggests, however, that the omega-6 arachidonic acid, often abbreviated throughout as, and the omega-3 docosa-hexaenoic acid, abbreviated DHA, are the only fatty acids that are truly essential. Essential in the physiological sense. They must be in our bodies to prevent problems. Eicosapentaenoic acid or EPA occurs in fish products but is probably not a normal constituent of the mammalian body and in excess it interferes with essential AA metabolism. The EFA requirement is inflated in the scientific literature by several factors. Number one, the use of diets composed mostly of sucrose, glucose, or corn syrup. Number two, the use of diets deficient in vitamin B6. Number three, the use of purified fatty acids instead of whole foods. Number four, the use of questionable biochemical markers rather than verifiable signs and symptoms as an index of EFA deficiency. And lastly, the generalization from studies using young, growing animals to adults. The true requirement for EFAs during growth and development is less than 0.5% of calories when supplied by most animal fats and less than 0.12% of calories when supplied by liver. On diets low in heated vegetable oils and sugar and rich in essential minerals, biotin and vitamin B6, the requirement is likely to be even lower than this. Adults recovering from injury, suffering from degenerative diseases involving oxidative stress, or seeking to build muscle mass may have a similar requirement. For women who are seeking to conceive, who are currently pregnant or lactating, the EFA requirement may be as high as 1% of calories. In other healthy adults, however, the requirement is infinitesimal if it even exists. The best sources of EFAs are liver, butter, and egg yolks, especially from animals raised on pasture. During pregnancy, lactation, and childhood, small amounts of cod liver oil may be useful to provide extra DHA, but otherwise, this supplement should be used only when needed to obtain fat-soluble vitamins. Vegetarians or others who eat a diet low in animal fat should consider symptoms such as scaly skin, hair loss, or infertility to be signs of EFA deficiency and add B6 or animal fats to their diets. An excess of linoleate from vegetable oil will interfere with the production of DHA while an excess of EPA from fish oil will interfere with the production and utilization of AA. EFAs are polyunsaturated fatty acids or PUFAs that contribute to oxidative stress. Vitamin E and other antioxidant nutrients cannot fully protect against oxidative stress induced by dietary PUFAs. Therefore, the consumption of EFAs should be kept as close to the minimum requirement as is practical while still maintaining an appetizing and nutritious diet. All right, Chris Mastrodron coming in 2022 to offer a summary of the updated reflections on this that I will intersperse in more detail throughout the report. First, I would distinguish between oxidative stress, uh, driving oxidative stress by PUFAs and an oxidative liability. I do use the phrasing oxidative liability in this report, but I also say over and over again that PUFAs drive oxidative stress. I think the right framework to use is that PUFAs do not cause oxidative stress, but they represent an oxidative liability, and since there are many things in our environment, diet, or just a transition to a different state of health to an illness or simply the process of aging that can provide a source of oxidative stress, Being having our tissues full of extra PUFAs does increase the vulnerability of that oxidative stress leading us into a greater degree of oxidative damage, which is the ultimately harmful uh, or sort of worst outcome end of the process of oxidative stress and distinguishing between something that causes oxidative stress and something that makes us more vulnerable to oxidative damage as a result of oxidative stress that could come in the future helps us dif- distinguish between some beneficial effects that are shown in, sh- in, in short term studies of PUFA feeding versus potential long term uh, health negative health outcomes and the greatest example of that is In the case of PUFAs in humans, over a short term can reduce liver fat, but the available evidence, especially if we incorporate the animal evidence, suggests that in the long term, they would predispose us to a greater progression of the accumulation of liver fat to the inflammatory conditions that predispose us to the worst health outcomes of that liver fat. And we could also relate it to heart disease where there is a beneficial effect shown in some studies on heart disease, but it seems that the longer we consume them, the more we start to lose the benefit to heart disease and the more we start to develop a net increase in cancer and potentially a net worsening of total mortality over the long term. I've also updated this with reflection on the interrelationships between riboflavin vitamin B6, biotin, and essential fatty acids in producing a common underlying cause of the skin conditions that occur in those deficiencies. I update this with the the perspective provided in the context of what we now know, that there is more that drives the vulnerability of a fatty acid to peroxidation in the body than simply its double bonds. Omega-3 fatty acids with a larger number of double bonds do have some potential to mitigate the vulnerability to peroxidation, which is oxidative damage, because of a chemical process called resonance, and also as described in here because of some signaling effects that they have in a hormetic effect where they can, when oxidized, upregulate our antioxidant defenses. My perspective on omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids with respect to heart disease is essentially the same now as in this report, but I do interject some updated reflections that offer a better, more comprehensive, more nuanced, and more fair evaluation of the literature than what I had done in 2008. Finally, I update this with some perspective on pharmacological benefits of higher doses Of omega-3 fatty acids, possibly with a specific role of EPA in that, in psychiatric conditions and in hypertriglyceridemia, although I also discuss why I think that that use in that way is somewhat on the wrong path or not the optimal thing to do in those conditions. So, listen on for the full report. I'll go into much more detail about those updated reflections as the topics come up during the course of the report. And now we move on to the full report. Beginning with the discovery in 1845 that pigs are capable of synthesizing fat from carbohydrate, through the 1920s, physiologists believed that neither fats nor their fatty acid components were essential nutrients. In 1920, Osborne and Mendel showed that rats consuming a diet only 0.3% fat by weight but with added fat-soluble vitamins consumed much more food and grew much more vigorously than rats on a standard diet and concluded that quote, if true fats are essential for nutrition during growth, the minimum necessary must be exceedingly small end quote. These researchers had been working with meat residue, purified starch, yeast, and alfalfa. Over the course of the next decade, however, investigators began using far more purified diets composed of far more noxious ingredients and demonstrated the existence of what have come to be known as the quote, essential fatty acids. In 1924, George Oswald Burr received his PhD in biochemistry and chemistry from the University of Minnesota. After studying the effect of soil chemistry and climate on plant sap in the Arizona desert for the summer, he moved to Berkeley to study the nature of vitamin E with Herbert Evans, who had discovered the vitamin with Katherine Scott Bishop just two years earlier. Since they were having trouble reproducing their vitamin E deficient diet, they developed an extremely simplified and purified diet based on casein and sucrose. The new diets produced a more extreme deficiency that could not be completely cured by vitamin E. Evans thought they had discovered a new vitamin, while Burr suspected that they had discovered the essentiality of certain fatty acids. The next year, Burr married Mildred Lawson, the stockkeeper of Evans rats, and in 1928 they headed back to the University of Minnesota where Burr had been hired as the head of plant physiology, but told he could continue his work on nutrition. In 1929, the Burrs published a landmark paper entitled A New Deficiency Disease Produced by the Rigid Exclusion of Fat from the Diet in the Journal of Biological Chemistry and a subsequent paper the following year in which they coined the term essential fatty acids, abbreviated throughout this report as EFAs. The birds fed young growing rats the highly purified diet developed in Evan's lab with yeast to supply B vitamins, a fat-free extract of cod liver oil to supply vitamins A and D, and in some experiments, a fat-free extract of wheat germ to supply vitamin E. The rats developed irritated sore and scaly skin, dandruff, and hair loss. Their tails were inflamed, swollen, scaled and rigid, and were hemorrhaging in certain spots. Their knees degenerated and blood appeared in their urine. Females stopped ovulating and became infertile. Rats of both sexes drank massive amounts of water that appeared to simply evaporate since it produced no increase in urinary output. Despite eating much more food, they gained much less weight. After several months, they began to lose weight, and within six months to a year, they had all died. To explain why their results differed so dramatically from those of Osborne and Mendel, The Burrs argued that even highly purified cornstarch still contains 0.6% of its weight as fat and the meat residue and alfalfa likely contained non-extractable fat that could not be detected. Thus, they argued, only a diet utilizing sucrose and casein, which can be purified to a much greater extent than starch and meat protein, could truly demonstrate the essentiality of the missing fatty acids. None of the vitamins. Proved curative. Coconut oil, whether hydrogenated or non hydrogenated, produced no curative effect, and butter's curative effect was very weak. The fatty acid fraction of cod liver oil partially ameliorated the syndrome and prevented the early death, while lard, liver, corn oil, flax oil, and olive oil proved fully curative. All of the fully curative oils had one thing in common. Presence of either linoleic acid, also called throughout this report as linoleate, or arachidonic acid, also called throughout this report as arachidonate, or AA, both of which are omega 6 polyunsaturated fatty acids, or PUFAs. Butter contains a small amount of both of these fatty acids and would later prove fully curative when provided in larger amounts. Subsequent experiments showed that purified linoleate and purified arachidinate were each capable of fully reversing the deficiency syndrome when provided alone. Arachidinate, however, proved to be at least three times more effective than linoleate. Since linoleate is a precursor to arachidinate, this effectively demonstrated that only arachidinate is required to prevent or cure essential fatty acid deficiency. The omega-3 fatty acids, alpha-linolenic acid or ALA and docosahexaenoic acid or DHA were able to stimulate weight gain to some degree but had no power at all to cure dermatitis, infertility, or many of the other symptoms. In fact, ALA made the dermatitis worse. By 1950, a former graduate student of George Burr's named Ralph Holman demonstrated with his own graduate student C. Widmer that PUFAs were comprised of two separate families of fatty acids. ALA was the precursor within the omega-3 family and was converted in rat tissue primarily to DHA, while linoleate was the precursor within the omega-6 family and was converted in rat tissue primarily to arachidonic. These pathways are shown in figure one on page four. Since omega-3 fatty acids could only ameliorate some of the symptoms while omega-6 fatty acids were fully curative by themselves, the omega-3 were largely ignored for decades to come. Later research, however, would show that deficiencies of omega-3 fatty acids could be induced by the addition of excess omega-6 to the EFA-deficient diet. The deficiency diets used by the Burrs contained no meaningful amount of vitamin K which had not yet been discovered, but the isolated fatty acids proved curative even in its absence. Thus it was clear that the observed EFA deficiency was a deficiency of arachidonic. The Mechanism of EFA Deficiency To truly clinch the case that certain PUFAs are essential, Advocates of the theory must be able to explain the mechanism whereby they carry out their essential actions. The best supported mechanism is usually overlooked by both old and recent reviews, the conversion of arachidonate to prostaglandin E2 or PDE2. The dermatitis seen in EFA deficiency appears to result from an abnormal increase in the permeability of the skin to water. The rats consume far more water than usual without increasing their activity or their urinary output and the skin condition only manifests when the humidity of the laboratory is low. The water evaporates through the skin and the degree of water loss correlates with the severity of the dermatitis. When deficient rats are placed in a covered beaker, they evaporate so much water that the sides of the beaker fog up. The permeability defect appears to be nonspecific. The skin also becomes permeable to lethal chemicals to which it is normally impermeable such as barium sulfide. Topical PGE2 completely cures EFA deficiency dermatitis. Probably because PGE2 stimulates the formation of gap junctions and tight junctions which are protein-composed connections between cells that are responsible for regulating the permeability of the skin barrier. Rats with genetically defective gap junction formation, develop scaly skin, increased permeability of the skin barrier, defective ovulation, and infertility. Rats with genetically defective tight junctions exhibit excessive water loss through the skin. With either defect, most of the rats die relatively soon after birth. EFA-deficient rats probably have much more mild deficiencies of the proteins involved in these junctions and thus exhibit similar symptoms, though they survive longer. The mechanism behind the failure to gain weight is much less clear. Whereas the dermatitis and infertility are only cured by omega-6 fatty acids, the low body weight is also cured, although less effectively, by omega-3 fatty acids. This suggests either that the underlying mechanism of the cure is different or that there are two curative mechanisms, one of which is specific to omega-6 fatty acids and the other of which is general to all PUFA. There is some evidence that a hypersensitivity to thyroid hormone could be responsible for the low body weight and death, but also considerable evidence contradicting this hypothesis. The most compelling explanation is that EFA deficiency causes a defect in the extraction of energy from food causing an effective state of starvation despite increased food intake. The precise mechanism of this defect, however, is still uncertain. These possibilities are discussed in more detail in the sidebar that is on page 8 in the PDF, but in the audio will be read at the end. It thus remains unclear whether the effect on body weight truly demonstrates the essentiality of any specific fatty acids. Nevertheless, the fact that PGE2, a product of arachidonate metabolism, completely resolves the dermatitis, while fatty acids that are not converted to arachidinate have no curative effect, shows conclusively that arachidinate plays an essential function in the body. The EFA requirement is exceedingly small. The simple fact that the burrs could not demonstrate EFA deficiency in young rats without a highly purified sucrose casein diet suggests that the requirement for these fatty acids during growth and development was extremely small. They confirmed this by not only preventing the deficiency but fully curing it with whole foods supplying EFA at well under 1% of calories. Sucrose casein diet supplemented with 2% lard by weight contained about 0.44% of calories as PUFA and proved fully curative. The same diet supplemented with 10% liver by weight supplied about 0.12% of calories as PUFA and not only proved fully curative but produced superior weight gain. Lard primarily contains the precursor fatty acid linoleate and only traces of arachidinate while liver contains nearly half of its PUFA as arachidinate. Liver is also rich in vitamin B6 which enhances the conversion of linoleate to arachidinate. Butter at 10% of calories greatly reduced symptoms and at 40% of calories proved fully curative. Although although amounts much less than 40% would probably have also proved fully curative, Even this amount provided only 0.56% of calories as linoleate and 0.08% as arachidinate. The Burrs used purified linoleate to prove the point that the fatty acid itself was curative, but used whole foods instead of purified fatty acids to estimate the EFA requirement because of the damaging effect of the purification process. Quote, all workers, end quote, they wrote, quote, recognize the fact that the acids isolated by the bromination method may not have exactly the same structure that they had in the natural oil, end quote. They cited evidence that linoleate isolated by this method took on at least two different structures. Indeed, studies using purified linoleate suggested that the requirement was just over 2% of calories, over four times the amount required when provided by lard or butter purified arachidinate at 0.7% of calories also proved fully curative, although the researchers did not test lower amounts. The existence of small amounts of arachidinate in lard and butter is probably a major reason for their superiority, but it is also possible that the linoleate from whole foods is much more effective than that from purified preparations. The EFA requirement is similarly low across species as shown in figure 2 on page 10 of the PDF. Unlike sidebars, figures and tables are not read inside this audio but can be accessed in the PDF or the text version of this report. Back to the main text. Butter supplying 1.3% of calories as PUFA prevented poor growth scaly skin and in increased susceptibility to infections in human infants consuming a formula made partly from skim milk and mostly from corn syrup. But the authors didn't test lower amounts. The same authors reported that both 1.3% and 2% of calories is purified linoleate incorporated into a synthetic fat molecule cured eczema in infants on the same type of formula. This requirement for purified linoleate is similar to that of the growing rat. Assuming that, like rats, humans respond better to animal fats than to purified linoleate, it suggests that the EFA requirement for growing human infants and children can be met by animal fats providing 0.5% of calories as PUFA. The EFA requirement is conditional. The EFA requirement is often presented in modern textbooks as 1-2% to of calories and recommendations for preventing EFA deficiency in adult humans are often 3% of calories as linoleate. Average intakes of PUFA in the United States greatly exceed these amounts at 6-7% to of calories. Although the estimates of the requirement are much lower than the average intake, they are greatly exaggerated by several factors. The use of purified linoleate instead of animal fats containing a mix of natural linoleate and arachidinate, the use of diets containing most of their calories as sucrose, glucose, or corn syrup, the use of biochemical markers that have never been shown to correspond to deficiency symptoms, the provision of inadequate vitamin B6, and the generalization from studies conducted in young growing animals to the needs of adults. Even on highly purified diets composed mostly of sugar, The requirement of young growing animals for EFA from natural animal fats is less than 0.5% of calories. The need would be much lower on diets low in sugar and rich in vitamin B6. And in non-pregnant adults the requirement is likely so low that it would be impossible to acquire a deficiency no matter how strictly one tried avoiding PUFA so long as one consumed a mix of natural foods of animal and plant origin. In fact, evidence suggests that the requirement of EFA per se is strictly conditional upon growth. The only attempt to induce EFA deficiency in an adult human ever performed was in 1938 when the biochemist William Brown volunteered to go six months on an EFA deficient diet in George Burr's laboratory. Each day, he consumed three quarts of defatted milk, a quart of cottage cheese made from it, sucrose, potato starch, orange juice, and some vitamin and mineral supplements. The decrease in his blood levels of arachidinate and linoleate was similar to that seen in in cases of infant eczema associated with EFA deficiency. But rather than experiencing adverse effects, he experienced a marked absence of fatigue, a normalization of his high blood pressure, and the complete disappearance of the migraines that he had suffered from since childhood. Dermatitis seemingly associated with EFA deficiency has been associated in adult humans with total parenteral nutrition, TPN, which is an intravenous infusion of a liquid diet. These diets, however, were also deficient in vitamin K, iron, zinc, and various other trace elements. In one case, the dermatitis failed to resolve with topical application of corn oil and in other cases resolved upon combined supplementation with EFA and zinc. The lack of clear evidence that the dermatitis can resolve upon EFA treatment alone makes the case for EFA deficiency weaker. Moreover, all of the subjects receiving TPN had severely underlying health problems, had severe underlying health problems, were often undergoing major gastrointestinal surgery, and were sometimes at the brink of death. Further, TPN by nature provides a continuous infusion of glucose, which prevents the breakdown of adipose tissue that would ordinarily occur between meals and thus prevents the freeing of stored linoleate for conversion to arachidinate. Researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison made the first attempt to produce EFA deficiency in adult rats in 1947. The only way they were able to induce a deficiency was by starving the rats until they lost half of their body weight and then allowing them to feed freely for two months as they gained back the weight they had lost. Typical symptoms of EFA deficiency such as scaly skin and hair loss set in during the period of recovery and were prevented or cured by a small amount of corn oil. Even in the non-supplemented rats, however, the symptoms spontaneously disappeared in the third month of the study. While the EFA requirement in adulthood appears to be greatly reduced compared to that during growth and development, The requirement during pregnancy appears to be increased. An experiment conducted in the 1940s demonstrated that EFA deficiency leading up to and continuing through pregnancy led to extended labor over two to three days, with excessive hemorrhaging, the death of some mothers after birth, and within two days the death of all of the young. The investigators used purified fatty acids and concluded that the requirement to support a healthy pregnancy was about double the requirement to prevent or cure dermatitis in young growing rats. This suggests that the EFA requirement during and preceding pregnancy is about 1% of calories when supplied by lard or butter and one-quarter this amount when supplied by liver. We can conclude, therefore, that the requirement for EFA is conditional upon growth. Including fetal growth during pregnancy and might also be conditional in cases of continuous parenteral infusion of glucose. Growth probably includes recovery from any injury since this involves the synthesis of new tissue and the prostaglandin-dependent formation of junctions between cells and muscle building or hypertrophy since the expansion of existing cells would require new membrane fatty acids. Additionally, alcoholism, diabetes, insulin resistance, and certain genes decrease the activity of delta-6-desaturase, one of the enzymes involved in the synthesis of arachidinate from linoleate. It seems probable that the combination of one of these conditions or genes with a strictly vegetarian diet excluding all forms of animal fat, really a vegan diet, could lead to a deficiency of arachidinate. If an EFA requirement for most healthy adults on a mixed diet exists at all, however, it must be so low that it is essentially impossible to achieve a deficiency. During periods of growth or recovery from injury, animal fats providing 0.5% of calories as EFA are probably sufficient. And during pregnancy, animal fats providing 1% of calories as EFA are probably sufficient. On diets low in sugar and rich in vitamin B6, especially diets including liver, the requirement is almost certainly even lower than this. The EFA requirement is affected by other nutrients. A number of energy molecules, vitamins, and minerals affect the requirement of free EFA. The overall effect of these interactions is probably to reduce the requirement for EFA during growth and development on a whole foods diet inclusive of animal fats to much lower than the 0.5% of calories suggested by most animal experiments. Cholesterol at 1% of the weight of the diet, which is like a human eating 75 eggs per day, aggravated the dermatitis in EFA deficiency that had no effect on the amount of linoleate required to cure it it aggravated testicular degeneration in the absence of EFA but it enhanced testicular development when EFA was provided pure saturated fat from fully hydrogenated coconut oil had no effect on dermatitis in rats regardless of EFA status but in human infants fed EFA-deficient diets with 85% of calories as corn syrup, replacing half of the corn syrup with hydrogenated coconut oil improved the skin condition. In rats, hydrogenated coconut oil had no effect on weight gain in the absence of EFA but in the presence of sufficient linoleate it enhanced the weight gain. Hydrogenated coconut oil greatly increased the PUFA content of tissues in these rats probably by protecting them against the free radicals that destroy them. This is discussed further in the sidebar on page 12 of the PDF and read at the end of this audio presentation. Thus, on a diet of mixed whole foods of animal and plant origin, the inclusion of foods rich in saturated fat and cholesterol should enhance EFA status. Indeed, foods such as butter, lard, liver, and presumably egg yolks are the most effective sources of EFA because they contain preformed arachidinate. Dietary protein might accelerate kidney damage in EFA deficiency but has no effect on the amount of EFA required to prevent damage. Refined sugars such as sucrose, glucose, and corn syrup increase the need for EFA to such a degree that it has been almost impossible to demonstrate EFA deficiency without them. Magnesium deficiency aggravates EFA deficiency in pigs, perhaps by perhaps by acting synergistically with excess glucose to increase oxidative stress. See the sidebar on page 12 of the PDF and discussed at the end of the audio presentation. Two B vitamins are essential for the conversion of linoleate to arachidinate, biotin and vitamin B6. The conversion consists of multiple elongations of the hydrocarbon chain and introductions of double bonds between its carbon atoms, a process called desaturation. Biotin is necessary for the elongation steps and vitamin B6 is necessary for certain desaturation steps. The same enzymes and cofactors are used for the conversions of the omega-3 fatty acid ALA to EPA and of EPA to DHA. Biotin dependent elongation is necessary for the synthesis of all fatty acids while vitamin B6-dependent desaturation is only necessary for PUFA metabolism, so the relationship of vitamin B6 to EFA deficiency is much more specific. The administration of vitamin B6 to EFA deficient rats causes a dramatic increase in the synthesis of arachidonate from linoleate and resolution of the deficiency symptoms." Chris Masterjohn in 2022 here stepping in. I would revise this slightly based on updated views of the deficiency syndromes of biotin B6 and B2 or riboflavin. So although I said in this report that the relationship of vitamin B6 is much more specific, I don't think the clinical syndromes of these vitamin deficiencies are consistent with that distinction. So, if you look at the deficiencies of biotin, riboflavin, and vitamin B6, they all share in common a vulnerability to dermatitis that is usually infected with candida. And I think if you had taken the dermatitis lesions from the EFA-deficient animals or, from those infants fed corn syrup and glucose in their infant formula, can you even imagine that they were feeding infants that? Anyway, um, I think that you would have found this similarity that they' that they tend to be infected with candida. And so I think this is opportunistic infections of the skin from fungi that are normally there in uh, you know, harmless quantities where they are. But once you disrupt the skin barrier, you have the evaporation of the water, you have the dryness setting in, and then you have a you have dis because you have disruption of the barrier, the microbes on the skin more easily get into places that they don't belong and go from a more superficial level to a deeper layer into the skin, thus getting infections in these dermatitis lesions and although you can find differences in how they're typically described in the textbook scenarios where uh you know the the rash tends to occur in these places with biotin and in those places with b2 and so on really what you find is that they don't have to be in those locations and the 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 observed the observations of the severe deficiency states are so sparse in the literature that minor idiosyncrasies just because of a variation of one person to the next could account for some of these differences, whereas there's this remarkable similarity of the cutaneous lesions for B2, B6 biotin and the essential fatty acids. And so, I actually think this connection and there, there is also some animal evidence that essential fatty acids help ameliorate the cutaneous lesions in biotin-deficient animals. So I believe this all ties together as follows. Riboflavin is necessary to convert the plant form of vitamin B6, pyridoxine, to the animal form, pyridoxal vitamin B6 and biotin are needed to convert linoleate to arachidinate. Arachidinate is necessary as the precursor to prostaglandin E2. Prostaglandin E2 is the primary regulator of the gene expression of the tight end-gap junctions that waterproof the skin barrier. And so a deficiency in anything leading up to PGE2 and its regulation of tight junctions will cause the same basic defect in the skin barrier which will cause the dermatitis lesions and the opportunistic infections such as candida in the or candida in those lesions and so i would revise what i was saying about the the greater specificity of vitamin b6 to really say that this is biotin, B6, riboflavin, essential fatty acids all converging on the one necessity, which is the proper ability to make prostaglandin E2 to regulate the proteins that make up the skin barrier. All right, back to the report. Last sentence I had read was, biotin-dependent elongation is necessary for the synthesis of all fatty acids while vitamin B6-dependent desaturation is only necessary for PUFA metabolism, so the relationship of B6 to EFA deficiency is much more specific. I just revised that. The next sentence in the report is, the administration of vitamin B6 to EFA-deficient rats causes a dramatic increase in the synthesis of arachidonate from linoleate and the resolution of the deficiency symptoms. Calcium deficiency and the consumption of rancid vegetable oil both indirectly but substantially impair desaturation. Dietary protein and total energy intake increase the conversion of linoleate to arachidinate. Zinc deficiency seems to impair this conversion. The effect, however, seems to be mostly, though perhaps not entirely, due to reduced food intake. Thus, a diet rich in essential minerals, biotin, B6, and low in refined sugars would provide a context in which the EFA requirement during growth and development would probably be much lower than the 0.5% of calories observed for most animal fats and 0.12% of calories observed for liver, and if a requirement during adulthood exists at all, it would be even lower. Likewise, the requirement during pregnancy would probably be much lower than the 1% of calories for most animal fats and one-quarter percent of calories for liver inferred from animal experiments. Indeed, these original figures may have been inflated in the first place because the experiments did not test lower amounts. Clearly, the requirements are so low that on a nutritionist whole foods diet inclusive animal of animal fats, it would probably be impossible to reduce one's PUFA intake to the minimum requirement. The question for those of us who do not consume industrially purified sucrose casein diets then, as we will see in subsequent sections, is not so much how much PUFA to obtain but how strictly we should avoid an excess. There are two exceptions to this rule. Strict vegetarianism, that is veganism, and high intakes of omega-3 fatty acids. The EFA requirement might be higher on a vegetarian diet in which the EFA is supplied by plant oils that do not contain any arachidinate, but the inclusion of bananas in such a diet which are very rich in bioavailable B6 would probably help keep it low. Strict vegetarians who develop skin problems, hair loss, or infertility should first try adding vitamin B6 to their diet if they have ethical objections to eating animal foods. If this fails, they should try adding animal fats. As we will see in the next section, omega-3 fatty acids become essential when linoleate is supplied in the diet at several percent of calories. Under many conditions, however, consumption of omega-3 fatty acids may lead to the accumulation of EPA, a fatty acid that both suppresses the production of arachidinate and interferes with its utilization. An excess of omega-3 fatty acids, then, could also lead to a deficiency of arachidinate, in which case the proper solution is to correct the excess of omega-3 rather than trying to get more omega-6. The essentiality of omega-3 fatty acids The fact that purified, EFA-deficient diets in animals and fat-free intravenous feedings in humans produced no symptoms specifically curable by omega-3 fatty acids led the research community to ignore them for decades. Once Ralph Holman and his colleagues convinced the medical establishment to begin including linoleate in the intravenous infusions to prevent omega-6 deficiency, however, suddenly a new deficiency was born. In 1982, Holman reported the first case of apparent omega-3 deficiency in a six-year-old girl who underwent repeated rounds of surgery for an abdominal gunshot wound and was maintained for over five months on total parenteral nutrition or TPN, which is an intravenous infusion of a liquid diet. The FDA had recently approved the addition of vegetable oils to TPN to provide EFA and two formulas were then available, one containing safflower oil and one containing soybean oil. The safflower oil formula contained an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of 115, while the soybean oil formula contained a ratio of 6, almost 20 times lower. After five months on the safflower oil formula, the girl experienced episodes of numbness, tingling, weakness, and inability to walk, leg pain, psychological disturbances, and blurred vision symptoms that had never before been seen in EFA-deficient animals or humans receiving fat-free TPN. Her blood levels of omega-3 fatty acids were low. When her physician switched her to the soybean oil formula, her omega-3 fatty acid levels returned to normal and her neurological symptoms disappeared. Animal experiments and tissue analyses suggest that the omega-3 fatty acid DHA is the essential product of the omega-3 family just as arachidinate is the essential product of the omega-6 family. See the sidebar on page 20 of the PDF and at the end of this audio presentation. DHA DHA is especially enriched in the brain and retina where its concentration is tightly regulated. During a critical window in the early development of these tissues, small amounts of omega-3 fatty acids Are required to provide maximal DHA content. After this window, the brain and retina are very resistant to the effects of deficiency. The synthesis of DHA from ALA requires all the same enzymes and cofactors required for the synthesis of arachidinate from linoleate. Thus, if preformed DHA is not supplied in the diet, an excess of linoleate will compete with ALA for these enzymes and suppress the formation of DHA. At all time points, therefore, maximal depletion of DHA requires an excess of omega-6 fatty acids in the diet. When fed to weanling rats for the first 11 months of life, EFA-deficient sucrose casein diets deplete retinal DHA concentrations by only 15% compared to normal laboratory diets. The addition of just over 10% of calories as safflower oil, however, causes a much more dramatic 50% depletion. Feeding rats for a similar amount of time just over 2% of their calories as purified linoleate with no other source of fat produces even more dramatic results. 62% depletion occurs in the first generation. If the females are bred with normal males and their second-generation pups are fed on the same diet, 92% depletion occurs. Similar results occur in the brain of the weanling rat. If linoleate is kept under two-thirds of a percent of calories, restricting omega-3 intake to as little as 0.05% of calories has essentially no effect on DHA levels regardless of the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. Two generations of feeding 2% of calories as purified linoleate with no other source of fat, however, depletes DHA levels by over 90%. These results suggest that the requirement of young rat pups for omega-3 fatty acids is incredibly small and that the nutritional status of the mother and the excess omega-6 content of the diet are much more important determinants of brain and retinal DHA concentration than the omega-3 content of the diet. Nervous tissue maintains very tight control of the chain length and unsaturation of its fatty acids. It is especially enriched in arachidinate which has 20 carbons and four double bonds and DHA which has 22 carbons and six double bonds. These two fatty acids preferentially cross the placenta and rapidly accumulate in the brain in the third trimester of pregnancy and are also supplied in breast milk. When the DHA content of the nervous tissue declines in the depletion studies The tissue synthesizes a rare omega-6 fatty acid with 22 carbons and five double bonds called docosapentaenoic acid or DPA to replace it. Even on an EFA-deficient diet devoid of omega-6 fatty acids, which can only be given to the weanling rats because mothers become infertile on such a diet, the nervous tissue will convert its arachidinate to DPA in order to replace the DHA. Simultaneously, it will convert the oleate it synthesizes from carbohydrate into the 20-carbon, three-double-bond mead acid to replace the arachidinate. When omega-6 fatty acids are in abundant supply, however, the synthesis of mead acid is suppressed and the arachidinate level remains normal, but the otherwise absent DPA still replaces the DHA. Since this tightly regulated system of fatty acid synthesis within nervous tissue would invariably produce high levels of arachidinate and DHA on anything resembling a normal diet even when PUFA intake is very low, it very strongly suggests that these fatty acids are essential to the functioning of the nervous system. The DPA that accumulates in the brain during DHA depletion cannot fulfill the functional role of DHA. Experiments with rats have shown that DHA depletion using high omega-6 diets definitely leads to visual deficits and possibly to learning deficits, although since most learning tasks involve vision, it has been difficult to differentiate the two. The visual system of the human is much closer to the visual system of other primates than it is to that of rats. Several experiments in rhesus monkeys have shown that have shown clear visual deficits with DHA depletion. These experiments fed adult females a sucrose casein diet using either safflower oil or soybean oil for at least two months before conception and throughout pregnancy and then removed the infants five days early by cesarean section and fed them an artificial formula for 12 weeks containing 30% of its calories as whichever type of fat the infant's mother had received. They measured their visual acuity by showing them black and white stripes of varying widths against gray backgrounds. Since this type of pattern stimuli inherently draws the attention of infant monkeys, whether they look at the card demonstrates whether they see the stripe. The safflower oil had an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of 255, while the soybean oil had a ratio of 7. In the monkeys receiving the safflower oil diet, DPA replaced the DHA in their brain and retinal tissue, and visual acuity was substantially impaired. Evidence suggests that human infants benefit from preformed DHA. During pregnancy, the fetus incorporates DHA into its brain at 10 times the rate at which it can synthesize it, probably by hoarding preformed DHA from the mother and selectively transporting that DHA into the nervous system. Even though the concentration of DHA in breast milk is small, the brains of breastfed infants accumulate 50% more DHA than those of infants fed formulas devoid of the fatty acid. Most importantly, in a double blind placebo controlled trial, the maternal use of two teaspoons of cod liver oil per day during pregnancy and lactation caused a significant increase in the mental processing score of the children at four years of age. The cod liver oil provided just over one gram of DHA but the two diets were adjusted to provide equal amounts of fat-soluble vitamins. Unfortunately, the placebo was corn oil and led to a 48% higher intake of linoleate. Nevertheless, the DHA intake was sevenfold higher in the cod liver oil group than in the corn oil group. And the only dietary variable associated with IQ in the final analysis was the total maternal intake of DHA. Chris Masterjohn in 2022 stepping in here to say, the only update that I would add to this is that later results from the same study showed that the IQ benefit disappeared seven years out. So this has a substantial influence on IQ at four years old, but not at seven years old. So I'm guessing that other factors become more important such as the learning environment of the child, subsequent nutrition, environmental exposures, and so on. But it does, it still appears to me that it makes sense to get a gram of DHA and whatever whatever EPA comes along with that per day into children during the lactation period. And the actual sum of DHA and EPA was roughly 2 grams in that study. And of course, in context, probably you don't need that much when you don't have a high omega-6 intake and you're optimizing all the other things being discussed in this report. Going back to the report, the requirement of the healthy non- pregnant adult for DHA is probably minimal especially if the intake of omega-6 PUFA is kept low. In the developing chick, large doses of fish oil are only capable of influencing brain levels of DHA within the first two to three weeks after birth. In rats, an EFA-deficient sucrose casein diet primarily depletes DHA levels in the retina during the first three months. Thereafter, the tissue seems to play catch-up for a few months and recuperate a small amount of its DHA with no further depletion taking place through 11 months, which is middle-age for the rat. No natural diet could possibly restrict omega-3 fatty acids to anywhere near the level of a purified sucrose casein diet and small amounts of preformed DHA are found in all animal products. Virtually any mixed diet that excludes omega-6 fatty acids, then, Should provide sufficient DHA for the healthy adult. If one has doubts, however, the use of pasture-fed butter and eggs and the occasional use of cod liver oil or fatty fish should provide well more than enough. The adult requirement for DHA is probably conditional not only upon pregnancy but also upon disease states that cause the oxidative destruction of DHA in tissues. Virtually all neurological diseases are associated with decreased levels of PUFA in humans, especially of omega-3 fatty acids, but also of omega-6. A number of other liver, kidney, and intestinal and immune diseases also show reductions in PUFA levels. This is probably because the oxidative stress associated with these diseases leads to the destruction of the PUFA. A study using mice spliced with a human Alzheimer's-related gene suggested that the loss of DHA in this disease contributes to the overall pathology. Dietary depletion of omega-3 fatty acids had no effect on brain DHA or learning capacity in normal mice, but in the gene spliced mice it caused major depletion of brain DHA, oxidative destruction of important neural proteins, and an impaired ability to navigate through a water maze. Adding DHA to the diet not only restored the DHA levels of the brain but eliminated the oxidative destruction of neural proteins and restored the normal cognitive capacity of the rats. DHA can be oxidized to a signaling compound that directs the cell to turn on its antioxidant defense genes. When it is lost, the antioxidant defenses would therefore fail. DHA thus seems to stand in the breach between pro-oxidants and the oxidative destruction of nervous tissue. The results of these studies clearly demonstrate that the requirement for omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids is primarily restricted to developing infants and children and pregnant and lactating women, and that the requirement for omega-6 fatty acids on a healthy diet is incredibly small so long as they are supplied by animal fats containing preformed arachidinate, and that the requirement for omega-3 fatty acids is even smaller so long as excess omega-6 fatty acids are avoided. During recovery from illness or degenerative diseases associated with oxidative stress, increasing arachidinate and DHA intake from foods such as liver, egg yolk, and and moderate amounts of cod liver oil may be useful. As we will see below, however, minimizing the total intake of PUFA is an important part of avoiding the oxidative stress to begin with. The perils of excess PUFA. In 1985, the lipid researcher Hugh Sinclair gave a pre-banquet speech on his 75th birthday before the Second International Congress on Essential Fatty Acids, Prostaglandins, and Leukotrienes in London in which he described the deleterious effects of 100 days of a, quote, Eskimo diet of seal blubber and undeodorized mackerel oil. He went on the diet to measure his bleeding time because the weather during a recent trip with several colleagues to northwestern Greenland had curtailed them from measuring the bleeding times of real Eskimos. Despite a daily supplement of vitamin E, His blood and urine levels of malondialdehyde, or MDA, a product of the oxidative destruction of PUFA, rose to 50 times the normal level. Although MDA causes birth defects, Sinclair was not worried about having quote, misshapen offspring, because his sperm had disappeared. Sinclair's experience represents two of the most important perils of consuming excess PUFA. A great excess of one family can interfere with the function of the other, and an excess of any type of PUFA raises the level of oxidative stress within the body. Sinclair would doubtlessly have replicated the Eskimo diet better under the guidance of an Eskimo. Physiologist Ray Peet has suggested that the consumption of endocrine glands and other organ meats on the actual Eskimo diet may have protected them against some Of the harmful effects of excess PUFA by increasing their metabolic rate. These tissues are also rich in arachidinate which is required for the production of sperm. Although oxidative stress contributes to sperm damage, the excess EPA from the fish oils may thus have also interfered with the the arachidinate-dependent production of sperm. The omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. As discussed in the main text on pages 13 and 14 of the PDF, which is the section on the essentiality of omega-3 fatty acids that we read earlier, and in the sidebar on page 20 of the PDF, which is read at the end of this audio presentation, an excess of the omega-6 linoleate will interfere with the synthesis of elongated omega-3 fatty acids from ALA in general and will tend to increase EPA levels at the expense of DHA. The other critical interactions between these two families is the ability of EPA to interfere with arachidinate metabolism. Although EPA is generally not found in significant amounts in tissues of animals fed on ALA-containing diets, fish oils will provide large amounts of it and lead to its accumulation. Unlike DHA, EPA does not have its own place in cell membranes. Because it is a 20-carbon PUFA just like arachidinate, it is very similar in structure and competes with all of the enzymes that metabolize arachidinate, including those that place it in cell membranes and those that free it from these membranes and synthesize prostaglandins from it. The prostaglandins made from EPA do not fulfill the functions of those made from arachidinate. Thus, EPA aggravates EFA-deficiency dermatitis and probably aggravates the decline in sperm production seen in EFA deficiency. Maternal and infant blood levels of arachidonate also correlate with infant growth before and after birth and there is some limited evidence that the addition of EPA to formula for premature infants decreases growth but that the addition of DHA does not. Out of ten populations from five different continents, American adults have the highest omega-6 levels and American infants have the lowest omega-3 levels an off cited study on the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio showed that the optimal ratio in rats for learning and the resistance to pain and hypothermia is 4. This study used purified linoleate and ALA. The ratio is likely to be much less important under two conditions. First, when the total intake of PUFA is low and second, when animal fats provide preformed arachidinate and DHA. As shown in figure 1, and the figures are not read in the audio but you can see them in the text version of this or the PDF. All of the same enzymes and cofactors are used to convert linoleate to arachidinate, ALA to EPA, and EPA to DHA. Linoleate from vegetable oil, ALA from flax oil, and EPA from fish oil will not only compete with each other for these enzymes but an excess of any of them will decrease the production of those enzymes aggravating the effect of the competition. When the total intake of PUFA is low, the production of the enzymes is high and the competition is less important. This is probably why when rats are fed less than 1% of calories as total PUFA during their first months of life, the ratio can vary between 0.04 and 12.1 without any meaningful effect on the DHA content of their brains. Moreover, while EPA competes with arachidonate for positions in the cell membrane, DHA has its own place in the membrane and does not directly compete with other fatty acids. When DHA and arachidonate are supplied directly in the diet, there is little if any competition between the two. If the total intake of PUFA is low, small amounts of EPA in the diet are more likely to be converted to DHA. Under these conditions, while diet Will expectedly have some influence on membrane composition. The membranes will most likely largely regulate themselves. PUFAs promote oxidative stress. After reading this section, I'm going to come back with some updated reflections. The mammalian body seems to do everything in its power to get rid of excess PUFA. The 18-carbon fatty acids linoleate and ALA are essential to plants and accumulate in their membranes where they protect them from cold spells and are enzymatically converted into hormones. Studies in rats, humans, and other primates show that these fatty acids are burned for energy at a far greater rate than monounsaturated and saturated fatty acids or the elongated PUFA. In rats, about 60% of them are burned for energy. 20 to 30 percent are broken down into their basic building blocks for the synthesis of saturated and monounsaturated fatty acids and cholesterol. And apart from the small amount used to synthesize the elongated products, most of the rest are secreted into the fur. Not even extreme EFA deficiency or the provision of abundant saturated and monounsaturated fats on a high fat ketogenic diet stops the conversion of 18 carbon PUFA to more saturated lipids. Nevertheless, a substantial portion of dietary PUFAs still accumulate over time in cell membranes. Perhaps the reason the mammalian body appears to be hardwired to get rid of the bulk of these fatty acids is because their excessive inclusion in cell membranes presents an oxidative liability that can wreak havoc on the cell. PUFAs are fatty acids that contain two or more double bonds between carbon atoms double bonds make a fatty acid very easily oxidized, that is, they make its electrons easily stolen by free radicals. Because the typical oxidation reaction that occurs in cell membranes requires the presence of two double bonds positioned near to one another, it is primarily PUFA rather than monounsaturated fatty acids that are vulnerable to oxidation. See figure 3 on page 22 of the PDF. The figures are not read in this audio presentation they are available at the end of the text version as well as in their normal place in the PDF. The more double bonds they have, the more susceptible they are. Oxygen binds to PUFA at the site of the oxidized double bond, turning the fatty acid into a peroxyl radical. Peroxyl radicals initiate chain reactions within cellular membranes by interacting with other PUFA. In each reaction, the peroxyl radical becomes a lipid peroxide and the second PUFA becomes a peroxyl radical that can go on to react with a new PUFA. The cycle continues, repeating this process. In the presence of certain metals, the lipid peroxides will break down completely into products such as MDA, which can infiltrate the rest of the cell to damage proteins and DNA. See figure 3 on page 22 of the PDF or at the end of the text version of this. The figures, again, are not read in the audio presentation. Lipid peroxides themselves can be enzymatically cleaved from the membrane and cause damage to the rest of the cell. The consumption of fresh, unoxidized DHA, EPA, or omega-3 rich perilla oil increases markers of oxidative stress in rats. Rats fed 30% of their diet as corn oil have double the lipid peroxidation, half the aerobic capacity, and 42% lower glycogen stores in their heart tissue compared to rats fed an equal amount of cod liver oil. Evidence suggests that this, oxidative, this increase in oxidative stress increases the risk of cancer, heart disease, aging, and virtually all degenerative diseases. Many studies have shown that dietary PUFA increases the risk of chemically induced cancer. For example, a carcinogen called DMBA induced tumors in 40% of rats eating a diet with 2% total fat, 78% of rats eating a diet with 2% linoleate and 18% coconut oil, and 100% of rats fed 20% corn oil. Other vegetable oils produced similar results. Fish oils also increased the incidence of cancer in these models but are less dangerous than corn oil. Perhaps the fish oil is less dangerous because the DHA can be oxidized into a signaling molecule that stimulates the cell to turn on its antioxidant defenses, although this is only verified in neural tissue. In the 1950s, researchers showed that the replacement of saturated fats with PUFA in tightly controlled and formulated milkshakes could reduce cholesterol levels. In the following years, The federal government and the American Heart Association endorsed the hypothesis that cholesterol concentrations in the blood were the driving force behind heart disease, and mainstream medicine began promoting the consumption of PUFA to protect against it. The modern understanding of the role of lipids in this disease, however, has changed dramatically. The most recent edition of the respected textbook, Modern Nutrition in Health and Disease, suggests that it is PUFA, not saturated fats, that contribute to heart disease. Theories And to quote this textbook, Theories regarding the genesis of atherosclerotic lesions have paralleled the development of the field. It is accepted currently that atherosclerosis has its origins in inflammation. Atherosclerosis is characterized by aortic accumulation of lipids as well as other chemical entities. Oxidation products of LDL are readily taken up by macrophages to form the foam cells that characterize the atherosclerotic plaque. Oxidized LDL rather than LDL per se is now regarded as a prime inducer of the atherosclerotic process. End of quote. Elsewhere, the same textbook states, quote, nutritional and biochemical studies suggest that diet can modulate the susceptibility of plasma LDLs to oxidative degeneration by altering the concentration of PUFAs and antioxidants in the lipoprotein particle. The first target of peroxidation in the oxidation of LDLs consists of PUFAs of phospholipids on the LDL surface." Oxidized LDL inhibits the production of nitric oxide which is one of the body's most potent weapons against heart disease. It dilates blood vessels, decreases the adhesion of white blood cells to the lining of the vessel walls, inhibits the migration of smooth muscle cells to the sites of atherosclerotic lesions, and decreases the formation of blood clots. Oxidized LDL also transforms white blood cells into the foam cells that accumulate lipids and clog up the vessels. The vessel wall by causing the white blood cells to flip on the relevant genes. Once the oxidation of PUFA in the LDL particle begins, oxidative damage spreads to the protein that weaves itself through the membrane and then to the cholesterol at the core. But the specific components of the oxidized LDL particle that turn on the foam cell genes are oxidized derivatives of linoleate substitution of polyunsaturated linoleate for monounsaturated oleate or the addition of several grams of fish oil even compared to a corn oil placebo increases the susceptibility of LDL particles to oxidation. It should therefore be unsurprising that the Harvard School of Public Health in conjunction, conjunction with Tufts University and several other institutions published a prospective study in 2004 in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition showing that the progression of atherosclerosis in postmenopausal women was directly correlated with the PUFA intake and inversely correlated with the intake of saturated fat. For every 5% of calories consumed as saturated fat, the women had 0.16 millimeter lower increase in the narrowing of the arteries, and those with the highest intake of saturated fat actually had a reduction in atherosclerosis over time. For every 5% of calories consumed as PUFA, there were 0.17 millimeter greater increase in narrowing. Carbohydrate intake was also associated with narrowing but to a lesser extent. The editors of the journal called the study the American paradox. They contrasted it to the findings of the Finnish mental hospital study which they called, quote, one of the earliest and most convincing, convincing studies of the better efficacy of unsaturated than of saturated fat in reducing cholesterol and heart disease. This study, however, was flaw- seriously flawed. It fed mental hospital patients two identical diets for six years, but one group received margarine instead of butter, as well as milk, whose fat had been replaced with soybean oil. Then the two groups were switched for another six years. The main flaw in the design was that the subjects came and went. If they left the hospital for years and came back, they were included in the final analysis, even if they began their stay at the hospital a month before the 12 year study ended. They were also included. But if they left at any time point without returning they were excluded. This type of design opens up the study not only to accidental confounding but also to the potential for malicious manipulation. The American paradox then isn't really a paradox at all. Studies testing the effect of omega-3 fatty acid supplements such as fish oil on heart disease risk are conflicting but do not support a preventative role for fish oil in healthy adults. A recent Italian trial found that a combined EPA and DHA supplement providing just under a gram of omega-3 fatty acids per day to patients who who had experienced a heart attack within the previous three months reduced cardiac and sudden death but only in patients with arrhythmia or who were taking beta blockers and no effect was seen in non-fatal heart attacks. Consistent with this, the first diet and reinfarction trial or DART trial Found a decreased risk of all cause mortality among heart attack survivors advised to eat fatty fish or take fish oil, while the second DART trial found an increased risk of cardiac and sudden death among patients who only had stable angina and who were supplemented with fish oil. The increase in risk was only found in patients who were not taking beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. These studies suggest that the benefit of fish oil supplementation is restricted to a specific subset of patients with established heart disease and may be harmful to those outside this select group. A recent meta-analysis that pooled the results of 14 prospective trials concluded that omega-3 fatty acids reduce the risk of heart disease more effectively than statins and other lipid-lowering drugs. But the only primary prevention study the authors included, that is, the only study aimed at preventing heart disease in those who did not already have it found a six-fold increase in total mortality, although the study was not statistically powerful enough to conclusively distinguish the effect from that of chance. The results of these trials clearly cannot be taken to suggest that fish oils will prevent heart disease in healthy individuals. Since most other degenerative diseases also seem to have an important component involving oxidative stress, the intake of excess PUFA is probably related to virtually all of them, especially those associated with aging. For example, animal studies have shown that the substitution of saturated tallow for polyunsaturated corn oil dose-dependently protects against alcoholic fatty liver disease, that both omega-3 and omega-6 PUFA increase the ability of the chemical aloxan to induce diabetes while saturated fats are protective and that substitution of polyunsaturated sunflower oil for the monounsaturated olive oil dramatically increases the age the age associated accumulation of dna damage this is chris masterjohn in 2022 coming in with some reflections on this section so first of all i would distinguish today between oxidative stress and oxidative damage And I would avoid the language that PUFAs cause or increase oxidative stress and I would use other language that I also used in this report but I would use it more consistently which is that PUFAs represent an oxidative liability. And because of this, I think there is a lot of conflicting evidence and this section did not comprehensively review that evidence. It selected, to some extent this seems a little bit cherry-picked to me in that i had selected some studies that i thought illustrated the point later i had done a much more comprehensive review of the trials on the substitution of the substitution of polyunsaturated rich vegetable oils for traditional animal fats with respect to heart disease and i think that Generally, the way to summarize that data is to say that the prospective correlational studies do generally find that heart disease risk goes down with increased polyunsaturated fat intake. But all of those associational studies were done after the introduction of the advice to avoid traditional animal fats and to include polyunsaturated vegetable oils to prevent heart disease. And so they are all confounded, hopelessly confounded by healthy user bias in my opinion. I would be very interesting interested in what such studies would have shown back before the 1960s. But in 1990 forward, when all that research comes, it's really not that useful to me. Then the randomized controlled trials, I focus on the ones that made a single substitution of the oils because many of them substituted the oils and also switched from refined grains to whole grains, also included uh, more fruits and vegetables, also included, you know, smoking cessation and so on. And these multifactorial trials, I think, are hopelessly confounded by the other aspects of the treatment. And if you focus on the single association studies, you can't say that they show that vegetable oils cause heart disease, but you can say that they do not support a benefit of switching out traditional oils for vegetable oils. And the most concerning thing is that the single uh, the single trial that lasted greater than five years, and that was the LA Veterans Administration Hospital style hospital trial, which went into the seventh and eighth gear. Showed that as you get five, six, seven, eight years out, that's when you start to see a loss of the benefit with respect to heart disease and a transition to an increased rate of, rate, rate of cancer, and a concern that you that you would start seeing a negative effect on on total mortality if you went past the 8 year mark i also think that with the fish oil trials the appropriate way to describe them and i i do think it's it remains my judgment that the benefit of omega-3s with respect to heart disease is primarily in replacing the loss of omega-3s in in cell membranes in patients that have had heart disease uh, diagnosed already to prevent arrhythmia and that that might be a short-term effect on the order of one or two years. With that said, I think the appropriate sort of summary of the fish oil trials is that only one of them lasted as long as four years. That was the DART2, DART2 trial, and it suggested a modest increase in the risk of, of heart disease versus all the all the other shorter studies. And so I think you, you wind up with the same problem on, on the fish oil. With that said, there are a lot of trials that can show short-term benefits of PUFA feeding, and I think fatty liver is a great example of that. There are at least two trials showing that in the short term, you can reduce fatty liver in humans with PUFA feeding. And this goes back very well to what was previously described in this report, which is that because they're an oxidative liability, you want to get rid of them, and so therefore, we are programmed to get rid of them at a higher rate, which means in the liver, beta-oxidize them more rapidly than we would beta-oxidize other fatty acids, and if you beta-oxidize fatty acids more quickly in the liver, you get rid of them in the liver, which means the liver fat declines. The problem is that animal experiments show rather clearly that The main relevance of PUFAs to fatty liver is that by by presenting an oxidative liability, you are essentially making the liver fat composed of kindling wood that when lit into a fire of oxidative damage will make the fire roar. And what that means in the context of the animal models is that the main effect of PUFA feeding is that If you have a second hit, this is a two-hit hypothesis of fatty liver disease. The first hit is accumulation of liver fat, which is called steatosis. The second hit is the ignition of the process of oxidative stress or inflammation, which causes the progression from simple steatosis to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH, which is where you get the possibility of progressing to cirrhosis, to fibrosis, cirrhosis, and ultimately liver failure and possibly death. It's So in the short term, you can um, help lower liver fat with PUFA feeding, but in the long term, you transition the fat that is in the liver into more PUFAs and you supply the kindling wood for when the ignition of the flame comes in the form of oxidative stress or inflammation, you have a much worse fire in the liver, a much greater risk of progression to NASH, and a much greater risk of progression through all of the clinical consequences of having developed NASH. So, I do believe that if I were rewriting this section in 2022, it would be more balanced, it would be more comprehensive, and it would allow for these short-term benefits of PUFA feeding, but the picture remains that although PUFAs are not the cause of oxidative stress, when they are present, the simultaneous presence of oxidative stress, which eventually will come to everyone in some form at some time down down the way, they present the liability that allows greater progression of oxidative damage. One other last and more minor point is that there is some research Suggesting that with a lot of carbons between two double bonds, which are the vulnerable carbons, carbons to oxidative damage. With many of them, you can have the uh, you can have the the oxidative vulnerability kind of passed around like a hot potato in a chemical process called resonance, and that can actually um, make some of the the longer and more and more omega 3 and more unsaturated fatty acids be less vulnerable to oxidative damage than you would predict based on their number double their number of double bonds but i think that can be misconstrued by some people to say that they're like antioxidants which it's the the i think the proper way to view that is that it is we now know that it is no longer as simple as saying that you have a linear increase in vulnerability with the number of double bonds, rather with the highly unsaturated, uh, especially omega-3 fatty acids, you have some potential to um, mitigate the vulnerability through resonance and you have some potential to have uh, a sort of hormetic effect on gene expression by the oxidative, uh, the oxidized form of the fatty acid affecting gene expression to ramp up antioxidant defenses. So it's not as it's not as straightforward as that and there are now multiple reasons to say that omega-3 fatty acids aren't as they're not as bad for oxidative stress as you would predict them to be just based on the fact that they have five or six double bonds in the in the elongated ones or 3 in the plant the plant oil version but none of that changes the fact that endogenously any fatty acid that has two or more double bonds has carbons that are vulnerable to peroxidation. those with Those with fewer, you know, one or fewer one or no double bonds are not vulnerable to the process of peroxidation within the body. And therefore, more excess PUFA beyond the the, beyond the amount that provides a benefit will clearly put you into the transition from benefit into diminishing the law of diminishing returns and then into harm or into the liability for harm. Okay. And I and in the uh, text version of this, I will put some links to some articles of mine or others that help flesh out these updated reflections. So back to the main report. Can antioxidants protect against the perils of PUFA? Vitamin E is an important antioxidant in cell membranes, but it cannot cure damage that has already been done. Inevitably, at least small numbers of free radicals produced in the normal metabolism of the cell will escape into the membrane and oxidize lipids. Vitamin E can prevent the initial damage from causing a chain reaction by converting peroxyl radicals to lipid peroxides, but these compounds can be enzymatically cleaved from the cell membrane and wreak havoc on the cell. Glutathione is required to convert the lipid peroxides into hydroxy fatty acids. These compounds are immune to further oxidation and thus unlikely to cause direct damage to other cellular constituents. But they are also the main components of oxidized LDL particles that stimulate the transformation of white blood cells into foam cells, conferring on them the ability to accumulate lipids and stick to the insides of the blood vessel wall. The accumulation of hydroxy fatty acids could also have adverse effects on the structural properties of cell membranes. Although vitamin E is essential to the protection of cell membranes, most of it is stored in adipose tissue. A portion of dietary PUFA is also stored in adipose tissue and apparently draws in extra vitamin E from the blood, lowering blood levels of vitamin E and delivery of vitamin E to cell membranes. Because the turnover of vitamin E is faster than the turnover of PUFA, vitamin E requirements may remain elevated for up to four years after discontinuing a high PUFA diet. Vitamin E has been shown to ameliorate some of the deleterious effects of PUFA, but its protection is partial at best. A number of studies have shown that it protects against cancer, but it offers no protection against diabetes or mortality induced by the combination of PUFA and aloxan. A placebo-controlled trial published in 1997 showed that fish oil supplying just over 6 grams per day of omega-3 fatty acids administered to healthy men for 6 weeks Raised the lipid peroxides by 20 to 35% and NDA levels by 60 to 70%. 900 IU of vitamin E per day, which is about 15 times the RDA and far more than one could possibly get from food, had no protective effect at all. In fact, the deleterious effects were even worse in the vitamin E group, though the difference could have been due to chance. Coenzyme Q10, CoQ10, is an important antioxidant in the mitochondrial membrane and the LDL particle. In LDL, lipid peroxidation remains slow while CoQ10 is present, but once it is used up, it increases 35-fold even in the presence of vitamin E, carotenoids, and other antioxidants. CoQ10 protects against age-associated accumulation of DNA damage in rats fed polyunsaturated sunflower oil, but even a a dose equivalent to a human taking over 50 milligrams per day Which can only be obtained by using supplements or by eating two to three servings of heart meat every day is less effective than substituting monounsaturated olive oil for the dietary fat. Preformed vitamin A or retinol is also a powerful antioxidant and its mechanism of action is less clear. It is 2.5 times as effective as vitamin E at preventing dioxin-induced mortality. And unlike vitamin E, it has a sparing effect on glutathione peroxidase, the enzyme that Uses glutathione to neutralize free radicals. Cod liver oil contains omega-3 fatty acids in combination with vitamins A and D and should therefore be safer than fish oil. This has not been tested directly, however. One study in type 1 diabetic rats showed that supplementation with cod liver oil at a dose equivalent to a human taking 7.5 teaspoons per day prevented the increase in lipid peroxidation seen in diabetes, at least in part by decreasing the levels of glucose and lipids in the blood. But had no effect on lipid peroxidation in non-diabetic rats. Unfortunately, the authors did not report the composition of the diet or whether the cod liver oil was substituted for a different oil in the untreated rats. Mice injected with the the kidney-damaging compound donomycin experienced an increase in renal lipid peroxidation, a decrease in renal glutathione peroxidase, and renal tissue damage when fed on soybean oil. But were mostly resistant to these changes when fed on cod liver oil. On the other hand, cod liver oil fed to healthy rats for 10 weeks as 5% of the diet increased urinary excretion of MDA at least as much as even larger doses of corn oil when compared to hydrogenated coconut oil. The effect was only seen when the rats were fasted for 48 hours, suggesting either that lipid peroxidation increases when free fatty acids are released or that lipid peroxides formed in the membrane are released with other free fatty acids during fasting and further degraded to MDA. None of these studies reported the vitamin A concentration of the cod liver oil. Until high-quality human data are obtained examining the effect of cod liver oil on lipid peroxidation and taking into account its vitamin content, it makes sense to use cod liver oil instead of fish oil, but to use it only in the amounts necessary to obtain needed fat-soluble vitamins or obtain a modest amount of DHA during pregnancy or to obtain a modest amount of DHA during pregnancy. The cell uses a wide array of lipid-soluble and water-soluble nutrients, enzymes, and related compounds to defend itself from oxidative stress. All of them are important to preventing lipid peroxidation. The available evidence, however, indicates that dietary PUFA represent an independent contributor to oxidative stress and dietary antioxidants can only partially compensate for these for their deleterious effects therefore seems wise to limit PUFA intake to as close to the minimal requirement as is practical while still maintaining an appealing and nutrient-rich diet. Chris Masterjohn in 2022 coming in again, simply to to reiterate that I today I would maintain essentially the same position except to make the distinction that PUFA are really not Should not be said to be an independent contributor to oxidative stress. They should be said to be an oxidative liability that, in the presence of oxidative stress, worsens the potential to progress to a greater degree of oxidative damage. Dietary conclusions The conventional terminology labels linoleate and ALA essential fatty acids because they cannot be produced by the body. This information is actually outdated because green leafy vegetables contain modest amounts of 16-carbon omega-6 and omega-3 PUFA that can be directly elongated to the so-called essential fatty acids and there is some evidence that the body might be able to convert lauric acid to ALA. A more sensible terminology would label only those fatty acids the body actually needs as essential. The evidence is conclusive that arachidinate is essential and very compelling that DHA is essential. The case for the essentiality of other fatty acids is presently unconvincing. Arachidinate and DHA might be conditionally essential in that they need not be supplied directly if precursor fatty acids are supplied in the diet, but there is no evidence that the precursors themselves are essential. The best sources of EFAs are liver, egg yolk, and butter, especially from grass-fed animals. These contain preformed arachidinate and DHA as well as smaller amounts of precursor fatty acids. On diets low in heated vegetable oils and sugar and rich in essential minerals, biotin and vitamin B6, more precursor fatty acids will be converted into additional arachidinate and DHA. On a diet low in sugar and rich in essential minerals, the requirement for EFA during periods of growth is likely to be well under 0.5% of calories if supplied by animal fats and well under 0.1% of calories if supplied completely by liver. Women who are hoping to conceive, who are pregnant, or who are lactating should consume at least twice this amount of EFA. Cod liver oil is an excellent source of additional DHA but only one or two teaspoons per day should be used. Because it contains EPA, cod liver oil should be balanced with liver and plenty of egg yolks. Egg yolks are also the best source of choline and animal experiments suggest that a great excess of choline during pregnancy provides lifelong benefits to the child's nervous system and mental functioning. Cod liver oil is an excellent source of fat-soluble vitamins. Weston Price supplemented growing children with three quarters of a teaspoon of cod liver oil per day combined with an equal amount of butter oil concentrate and obtained dramatic improvement in dental health. Growing children might benefit from a small amount of DHA in the diet, especially when they are very young and their brains are still developing. As for pregnant women, the amount should be kept small and balanced by a diet that includes liver and is rich in egg yolks. Vegetarians and those consuming limited amounts of animal fat should be aware that EFA deficiency remains a possibility for those who do not efficiently desaturate and elongate precursor PUFA. If they experience any symptoms of EFA deficiency such as scaly skin, hair loss, or infertility, they should try increasing their intake of vitamin B6 or animal fat. Lard is also a good source of EFA but because it is high in linoleate it should only be used in smaller amounts. Lamb and beef tallow are lower in total PUFA and can therefore be used as staple fats, but like lard, will provide some preformed arachidinate. Olive oil and red palm oil contain modest amounts of linoleate and can be used in small amounts. Red palm oil is an excellent source of vitamin E and carotenes. Coconut and macadamia nut oils are very low in PUFA and can be used in larger amounts, but they cannot be substituted for animal fats that supply EFA. PUFA-rich vegetable oils and fish oils should be avoided. While arachidinate and DHA must be supplied by food, the body easily synthesizes saturated and monounsaturated fats from carbohydrates. The benefit of consuming these fats then is to avoid an excess of PUFA and carbohydrate and to supply taste and satiety. The evidence presented herein suggests that the ideal diet contains a mix of saturated and monounsaturated fat with only very small amount of PUFA provided primarily by animal fats such as lard, liver, and egg yolks. Such a diet will provide the required amount of EFA while simultaneously avoiding an excess of PUFA and the ravages of oxidative stress. Such an excess brings with it, and thus, we hope, provide good health into old age. That is the end of the report, although there, we still have the sidebars to go through. Chris Master drawn in 2022 coming in just for a few reflections on the overall dietary conclusions. I would say that there now is good evidence that very high doses of EPA can lower triglycerides in people who have intractably high triglycerides, and this I think is a pharmacological not nutritional effect that is based on the inhibition of car- of the of the regulation of gene expression by carbohydrate and insulin, and it, it is essentially treating insulin-resistant people by interfering with the pro-triglyceride synthesis effect of the high levels of carbohydrate and insulin signaling that they get um, in what is called selective hepatic insulin resistance. So, they become resistant to the effect of insulin on glucose but not to the effect of insulin on fat synthesis. And so I think that's basically treating a problem that should be better treated by other ways such as resolving the underlying insulin resistance, Um, you know, although there might be genetic hypertriglyceridemia, in which case it does make sense. Then the second thing I would add is there is some evidence for two gram-ish amounts of omega-3 fatty acids for psychiatric problems and there is some evidence for EPA rich being better than DHA rich, although it's not very robust evidence in the case of some of those psychiatric problems. And it's unclear to what degree these are acting as kind of supply the EPA to get an an a non steroidal anti-inflammatory drug NSAID like effect inhibiting peak levels of inflammation. Which I think is playing kind of a dangerous game because reducing inflammation might be beneficial in in the you know in the thing you are currently trying to target, but animal experiments show very clearly that NSAIDs lower peak inflammation, also inhibit the resolution of inf- of inflammation, so you never return to baseline, which is a recipe for chronic low grade inflammation, which is something where population wide suffering from an epidemic proportions and is consistent with the human side effect profile of NSAIDs. And the last thing I would add is that I think that a lot of people who might have symptoms of essential fatty acid deficiency now are not having a problem with deficient essential fatty acids as much as they are having a utilization problem where the use of NSAIDs, high-dose fish oil, and other anti-inflammatories to try to combat inflammation in a pharmacological way rather than resolving it or removing the causes of it is interfering with arachidonic acid utilization. Then, of course, the conversion problem where a lot of people are eating high amounts of vegetable oil but do not have good conversion of the linoleic acid to arachidonic acid and so the vegetable oils are suppressing the Conversion itself, on top of relatively poor conversion already, with a diet that doesn't have a lot of preformed fatty acids in it, I, I do think there we can wind up with low, um, lower arachidonic acid levels in that way that are then are exacerbated by diseases causing oxidative stress. So I, I do think that there are people who have PUFA intakes that are too high and yet are suffering from essential fatty acid deficiency symptoms. But it's driven more by this defective conversion or defective utilization from those causes rather than they're not eating enough poof-up. All right, so with that, let's go back to the report, and now we it is it, has, it falls to us to read through the sidebars. We are skipping over the figures, so we're skipping figure one, and we are skipping figure two and figure one, and we're skipping uh, figure three. So these figures are on the conversion processes. Figure two is a table of different uh, fatty acid requirements of different species. Figure three is on a figure visually illustrating the process of lipid peroxidation. But we are going to read in this audio presentation the sidebars. So we're going to go through is, linoleic essential, linole, is linoleate essential to skin health? Then we're going to go through changes to the endocrine system and EFA deficiency. Then we're going to go through, are EFA deficient rats hypersensitive to thyroid hormone? Then we're going to go through EFA deficiency, free radicals, and high-sugar diets. Inflating the EFA requirement with the triene to, te- to tetraene ratio. And that will, and then finally, is EPA an essential fatty acid? So, with that, we start from the beginning of the sidebars. And this is Is linoleate essential to skin health? Current reviews claim that linoleate, rather than arachidonate, is the fatty acid that cures the dermatitis associated with EFA deficiency. Humans and other animals possess enzymes that convert linoleate to arachidinate and arachidinate to a number of different products called prostaglandins, including PGE1 and PGE2. In 1972, researchers from the University of Miami School of Medicine showed that while abdominal injection of PGE2 was ineffective, its topical topical application completely cured EFA deficiency dermatitis. The effect was dose-dependent and limited to the local areas to which the prostaglandin was applied. This study seems to have been overlooked in favor of older studies showing that oral delivery or injection of PGE1 had no effect. Current reviews make no mention of this study and instead cite Danish research from the 1980s that implausibly attributed the protection of omega-6 fatty acids against EFA deficiency dermatitis to linoleate. The Danish group showed that certain fatty acid derivatives that accumulate in the skin barrier ordinarily contain primarily linoleate but in EFA deficiency contain primarily oleate, the fatty acid that predominates in olive oil, and the major unsaturated fatty acid that the body can synthesize from carbohydrate. All of the fatty acids that resolve the water loss increased the amount of linoleate found in the skin barrier, but the degree to which they increased this linoleate did not correlate with the degree to which they cured the water loss. Puzzled by the fact that arachidonate cured the water loss but was not known to be converted backwards to linoleate, the researchers made a poor attempt to demonstrate this backwards conversion. They fed linoleate and arachidonate that were both labeled with radioactive tracers together and found a higher ratio of radio-labeled linoleate to arachidonate in the skin barrier than, than they had fed in the diet. The simplest explanation of their results was that linoleate is preferentially incorporated into the skin barrier, but they claim to have observed apparent in vivo retro conversion of arachidinate to linoleate. They could have easily shown this by feeding radio-labeled arachidinate alone and seeing if any radio-labeled linoleate turned up, but they did not. One year later, researchers from the University of Iowa College of Medicine showed that the incorporation of oleate derivatives into the skin barrier during EFA deficiency had no effect on the barrier structural properties, and to this day, current reviews make no claims that arachidinate can be converted to linoleate. The hypothesis was implausible from the get-go because arachidinate is at least three times more effective at curing dermatitis than linoleate, and vitamin B6, which increases the conversion of linoleate to arachidinate, dramatically improves the dermatitis. If linoleate were the curative fatty acid, it should have proved more effective than arachidinate even if arachidinate were converted backwards to linoleate. And vitamin B6 should have made the dermatitis worse. Our second sidebar is changes to the endocrine system in EFA deficiency. A number of different changes occur to the endocrine system in EFA deficiency. In females, ovulation ceases resulting in a decreased production of estrogen and progesterone by the ovaries. Males suffer from impaired sex interest, testicular degeneration, and cessation of sperm production. Both sexes suffer microscopic changes to tissue that are characteristic of castration, and in males they are virtually completely restored by the administration of testosterone, suggesting that they are mediated by impaired production of the hormone. In both sexes, the thyroid gland is smaller while the adrenal glands are smaller in females but larger in males. The changes in the weight of the adrenal glands in both sexes are consistent with the deficiency of their respective sex hormones and in males can be rescued with testosterone therapy. The male adrenal glands are unable to respond to stressors such as fracture, surgery, fasting, and cold temperature. Despite the decrease in the size of the thyroid, no major changes in its production of thyroid hormone occur. There is conflicting evidence, however, regarding the possibility that the body tissues of EFA-deficient rats are much more sensitive to the hormone. This possibility is critically reviewed in the next sidebar. Sidebar number 3. Are EFA-deficient rats hypersensitive to thyroid hormone? The earliest symptom of EFA deficiency is an increase in the metabolic rate represented by a 25-30% to 30% increase in oxygen consumption beginning within 7-14 to 14 days after commencing the diet. Some early investigators suggested that there was an antagonism between the thyroid gland and unsaturated fatty acids because the double bonds of these fatty acids can absorb iodine that is needed for the synthesis of thyroid hormone. Burr rejected this idea for three reasons. The feeding of unsaturated oils that had no curative properties to EFA-deficient rats had no effect on their metabolic rate. Curative oils raised it even further and in untreated rats the metabolic rate fell to normal or below normal after four months even as the deficiency became more severe. Furthermore, research conducted in 1956 showed that substantial loss of iodine occurred in EFA deficiency probably from evaporation through the skin, but that iodine uptake and metabolism by the thyroid gland was normal. A paper published a few years earlier, however, suggested that EFA deficiency may involve a markedly increased sensitivity of body tissues to thyroid hormone. Feeding supplemental thyroid hormone to EFA-deficient rats in this study aggravated the loss of body weight and increased mortality, though the authors did not examine the effect on the metabolic rate or other parameters more specific to thyroid hormone extra B vitamins aggravated the effect but the addition of 30% cottonseed oil by weight completely eliminated it. Evidence for thyroid hormone hypersensitivity, however, is conflicting, sometimes difficult to interpret, and ultimately unconvincing. Because the dose of thyroid hormone in the cottonseed oil was, cotton seed oil study was small, a 1963 review interpreted it as showing an extraordinary sensitivity to this hormone in EFA-deficient rats, But offered no mechanism to explain the hypersensitivity. Additional test-tube experiments conducted in the 1980s showed that unsaturated free fatty acids inhibit the action of thyroid hormone by three, three distinct mechanisms. They inhibit the binding of thyroid hormone to serum transport proteins. They inhibit the enzymes that convert thyroid hormone to its active form. And they inhibit the binding of thyroid hormone to its own nuclear receptor had Burr not already shown that the elevation of the metabolic rate was specific to the lack of EFA and not to the lack of unsaturated oils in general, one could have argued from this data that as dietary unsaturated fatty acids reached a minimum, inhibition of thyroid signaling would also reach a minimum and hypersensitivity would ensue. A closer look at the test tube data, however, weakens this argument even further. The experiments demonstrating the inhibition of transport and activation used serum from patients with non-thyroidal illness, a designation given to non-hypothyroid patients with decreased levels of thyroid hormones in the blood. These patients generally suffer from starvation, surgery, heart attacks, stomach infection, or other severe illnesses and have abnormally elevated concentrations of free fatty acids. Moreover, these studies suggested that oleic acid was the most important inhibitor present in the blood And oleic acid is elevated in EFA deficiency. Unsaturated fatty acids are potent inhibitors of thyroid hormone receptor binding in isolated nuclei, but the concentration required for effective inhibition in whole cells is much higher than that needed in isolated nuclei, and is unlikely to be encountered in a healthy organism. And finally, while there is evidence that the release of free fatty acids in response to stress can decrease thyroid receptor signaling in the live animal, There is no data showing that dietary PUFA can modulate this effect. A more compelling interpretation of the cottonseed oil experiment is that excess thyroid hormone increased the need for arachidinate and cottonseed oil supplied it indirectly by providing linoleate. Early experiments showed that toxic doses of thyroid hormone decreased weight gain, increased mortality in females, increased mortality and in females inhibited ovarian development. These experiments showed that thyroid hormone increased the need for most of the B vitamins and that yeast, which is rich in all B vitamins except B6 and B12, counteracted the increase in mortality while desiccated and defatted liver not only decreased mortality but completely reversed the failure to gain weight and the inhibition of ovarian development. Vitamin B12 counteracted the failure to gain weight when the diet consisted of soybean meal but not when it consisted of sucrose and casein, leading to the search for the antithyrotoxic factor of liver whose need was especially apparent on the sucrose casein diet. The defatted liver, quote-unquote defatted liver, still retained 7.5% of its fat, which would supply a substantial amount of arachidinate in addition to the water-soluble B6, which would help the rats make arachidinate from the linoleate in the liver extract and from the linoleate released from their own fat stores. Various PUFA-rich vegetable oils all counteracted the toxic effect of thyroid hormone, but lard was more effective than all of them. Lard has much less PUFA than vegetable oils but contains small amounts of preformed arachidonate. These experiments strongly suggested that excess thyroid hormone aggravates the deficiency of arachidonate produced by an EFA-deficient diet and that arachidonate itself is the antithyrotoxic factor of liver. The increase in the metabolic rate is probably a result of a defect in the electron transport chain that causes an inability to efficiently harness energy from food. The electron transport chain exists in the membrane of the mitochondria, the so-called powerhouse of the cell. It takes hydrogen ions and high-energy electrons from food and delivers them to oxygen, converting the oxygen to water. The electrons give up energy in the process which is used to pump hydrogen ions across the membrane. The backflow of these ions drives a molecular turbine, Within the enzyme ATP synthase, which uses the mechanical energy of the turbine to synthesize ATP much like a water turbine uses the flow of water to do work. The cell then uses ATP as its basic energy currency. ATP synthase normally fails to harness a portion of the hydrogen ion backflow whose energy is instead dissipated as heat. If a deficiency and thyroid hormone both increase the proportion of energy lost as heat, but in different ways. Thyroid hormone increases the activity of the electron transport chain in the production of ATP so much that there's an overflow. This is like pouring water from a bucket marked food into lots of cupped, cups marked ATP. The faster you pour, the more you will spill and the cups still get full. In an EFA deficiency, the electron transport chain fails to efficiently pump the hydrogen ions in the first place and fails to make the ATP. This is like poking holes in the bucket. The water still spills, but the cups never get full. The live organism engages in a number of adaptations to try to conserve its capacity to make ATP, but the net availability of this critical energy molecule is still depleted. The body temperature of the EFA-deficient animals never rises, probably because the heat leaves as the water evaporates through the skin. The metabolic rate decreases to normal or even below normal after four months and is actually increased at all time points with curative doses of EFAs. This is the opposite of what we would expect but probably occurs because the measurement is adjusted for surface area rather than lean body mass and part of the loss of body weight in EFA deficiency may represent the wasting of metabolically active muscle tissue and part of the gain during EFA repletion may represent the rebuilding of its tissue. Thus thyroid hormone seems to aggravate EFA deficiency by increasing the need for arachidinate, but a hypersensitivity to it does not seem to be involved in the basic presentation of the deficiency. Rather, defective electron transport chain functioning effectively leads to starvation in spite of the increased food intake because of an inability to harness energy provided by it. Our next sidebar is EFA deficiency, free radicals, and high sugar diets. George and Mildred Burr argued in their first paper that the deficiency disease their rats developed on fat-free sucrose casein diets had not been seen on fat-free meat residues starch diets because starch could not be sufficiently purified of EFA. But later research showed that a diet that is nearly three-quarters starch contains only .003% more calories as linoleate than a diet that is nearly three-quarters sucrose. This argument may have made sense in 1929 when the Burrs had merely demonstrated the essentiality of fat but made much less sense once they demonstrated in 1930 that the curative fatty acid that could be present in starch was linoleate which is present in such a negligible proportion. Rats fed an EFA-deficient diet based on starch for six weeks had over 50% more arachidinate and over 80% more linoleate in their livers than rats fed an EFA-deficient diet based on sucrose, suggesting that sucrose increases the rate of degradation of these fatty acids. High-sucrose diets increase lipid peroxidation in rats, a process whereby PUFA are destroyed by oxygen and free radicals. Magnesium deficiency also increases lipid peroxidation, and the effect of excess sucrose and magnesium deficiency is additive. Magnesium deficiency exacerbates EFA deficiency in the pig, but its effect has not been investigated in the rat. It is likely that not only the high sucrose content of the EFA-deficient diets, but also the low content of magnesium and other protective minerals contained within them greatly increase the need for essential fatty acids by promoting their oxidative destruction. Up until the 1960s, there was the quote lingering question of whether high sucrose diets were somehow responsible for EFA deficiency. According to Ralph Holman, this question was closed in 1965 when he and his colleague Jorge Casal showed that a biochemical marker called the triene to tetraene ratio was increased in rats fed for six weeks on EFA-deficient diets, whether the carbohydrate portion was composed of sucrose, glucose, maltose, or starch. But they did not run the experiment long enough for the rats to develop dermatitis or any other symptoms specific to EFA deficiency, and there was never any conclusive evidence that this marker was sufficient to demonstrate true deficiency. Thus, the question remained open, even though reviewers stopped asking it. A number of animal studies following that of the burrs demonstrated EFA deficiency using glucose instead of sucrose. These diets tended to contain between 75 and 85% sugar by weight, which is like an adult human eating some 4 pounds of sugar per day. W.M.F. Leet of the Cambridge School of Agriculture in the UK performed a much more sensible set of experiments using dried skim milk supplemented with white fish meal as protein, palm kernel cake as fat, cassava as carbohydrate, and varying amounts of olive oil to supply the linoleate. The diet was thus lower in total carbohydrate and contained starch rather than sugar. He prevented dermatitis with a much lower level of linoleate than was needed in other studies and observed no effects of the deficiency on growth at all. An aggravating effect of sugar is further supported by a human study in which eczema and other EFA deficiency symptoms were observed in infants consuming most of their calories as corn syrup. Although the addition of butter fat was necessary to completely cure the deficiency, the addition of 42% of calories as hydrogenated coconut oil containing only saturated fat and no EFA substantially ameliorated the eczema, probably because it replaced half of the corn syrup the efa deficiency is probably much the efa requirement is probably much lower than on diets that do not contain most of their calories as refined sugars and possibly on diets that are lower in total carbohydrate and now the related sidebar inflating the efa requirement with the triene to tetraene ratio Linoleate is converted to arachidonate by a series of enzymatic reactions that elongate the fatty acid and introduce double bonds between its carbon atoms, a process called desaturation. The same enzymes elongate and desaturate the omega-3 fatty acid ALA. When linoleate and ALA are in short supply, however, these enzymes will convert oleic acid, oleate, found in olive oil and produced by the body, into an elongated and desaturated product called meat acid, named after James Mead, who elucidated the pathway by which the body synthesizes it. Mead acid is normally present in the body but only in small amounts. In EFA deficiency, arachidinate levels decrease as mead acid levels rise. Ralph Holman therefore proposed that the ratio of mead acid to arachidinate is an index of EFA deficiency. In organic chemistry, the suffix "-ene refers to compounds with double bonds between carbon atoms. Since mead acid contains three double bonds, it is called a triene. And since arachidinate contains four double bonds, it is called a tetraene. Mead acid is the predominant triene in the body, and arachidinate is the predominant tetraene. Holman therefore promoted the use of an easier but virtually identical measurement called the triene to tetraene ratio. Pullman propagated the idea that the normal triene to tetraene ratio is maximally suppressed. In other words, the minimum requirement for EFA is the intake that maximizes levels of arachidonate and minimizes levels of meat acid. He never presented any evidence of this. In fact, he presented evidence that flatly contradicted it. But this did not stop the use of the maximally suppressed triene to tetraene ratio as the standard indicator of sufficiency from spreading like wildfire through the research community. Holman fed various combinations and amounts of butter and cottonseed oil to rats on a sucrose casein diet and concluded that a ratio of 0.4 or less indicated the minimum requirement of EFA for normal metabolism had been reached. Butterfat cured the symptoms without providing enough EFA to meet the prescribed ratio and Holman suggested that the saturated fat masked the symptoms of deficiency. Ironically, the t- trying to tetraene ratio of the butter was 7. This is almost 18 times the ratio that is supposed to indicate the minimum EFA requirement has been met. Were the cows EFA deficient? Another study that reported the trying content of the diet used purified casein and gelatin whose small amount of residual fat had a ratio of 2.5, apparently also taken from EFA deficient cows, quote-unquote EFA deficient. A report showing that less than 0.2% of calories as EFA was sufficient for growth in chickens concluded that the requirement was one was between 1 and 2% of calories based on the trine to ratio. Holman co-authored a paper showing that 0.23% of calories as EFA, as EFA was sufficient for growth in pigs and found no dermatitis even at less than 0.2% of calories but concluded that the minimum requirement was 2% of calories based on the triene-to-tetraene ratio. He later suggested that Australian aborigines are EFA-deficient because their ratio is elevated but cited no physiological consequences of the elevation. Holman also co-authored a 1972 paper that reported seven cases of supposed EFA deficiency in human infants intravenously fat fed fat-free formulas. Six of the infants were fed for 17 to 36 days and displayed trine to tetraine ratios between 0.8 and 3.0 that demonstrated deficiency, but the infants exhibited no symptoms. Their ratios returned to quote-unquote normal after feeding linoleate or resuming quote-unquote normal formula. The values for quote-unquote normal ratios were taken from four-month old infants consuming a formula that contained over 55% of its fat as linoleate. The seventh infant had a distended abdomen and had been vomiting since birth and had most of its small intestines surgically removed the day it was born. It was fed intravenously for 4.5 months until it died of meningitis and was the only infant to display eczema. The physicians made no attempt to cure the eczema by feeding or topically applying EFA, so there was no evidence that it resulted from EFA deficiency, but the infant's trying to tetraene ratio was 18.3. Because of the elevated ratios, Holman and his colleagues concluded that all seven infants were EFA deficient. The assumption that the production of meat acid should be maximally suppressed would make sense if we could show that it does not belong in the body, but that is. Far from clear. An oleate to linoleate ratio greater than 10 will elevate levels of meat acid, and several traditional dietary fats provide such a ratio, butter, tallow, and lamb fat. Meat acid is the predominant PUFA in the healthy cartilage tissue of young animals on EFA-sufficient diets, and the placenta preferentially supplies it to the growing fetus during pregnancy. Four times as much is present in umbilical cord blood as in maternal circulation. It is therefore possible, though far from proven, that meat acid plays an essential role in the body. Clearly, whichever the case is, the use of the trine to tetraene ratio in the EFA literature has greatly exaggerated the requirement for these fatty acids. And our last sidebar, is EPA an essential fatty acid? Fish oils provide both DHA and another omega-3 fatty acid, icosapentaenoic acid, or EPA. The EPA content of terrestrial animal products, even those rich in DHA, is generally minimal. Discussions of essential fatty acids often highlight not only DHA for its role in the brain and retina, but also EPA for its putative role in protecting against inflammation. Considerable evidence, however, suggests that DHA is the exclusive essential omega-3 fatty acid Just like arachidinate seems to be the exclusive essential omega-6 fatty acid. In the blood, the levels of DHA and arachidinate are tightly correlated with one another. DHA and arachidinate, but not other omega-3 or omega-6 fatty acids, are selectively transferred across the placenta. Whereas arachidinate is present in substantial amounts in most tissues, DHA is found in lower amounts in them and primarily accumulates in the retina and cerebral cortex. Where its concentration is highly regulated, and it is the exclusive omega 3 fatty acid found. The DHA content in these tissues is very similar across mammalian species, despite widely varying intakes of omega 3 fatty acids, strongly suggesting it is functionally important. There are no tissues, however, that contain tightly regulated levels of EPA. When Holman and Widmer first demonstrated in 1949 that omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids represent two distinct families of PUFA, they examined nine different tissues in rats on normal lab diets and could not find even a trace of EPA. DHA was the omega-3 fatty acid found in these tissues. In rats that consumed an EFA-deficient sucrose casein diet for three months and were subsequently supplemented with the omega-3 precursor, ALA, EPA, turned up in blood and kidney tissue, but not in any of the other tissues. The authors concluded the following, kidney damage, and this is a quote, kidney damage is one of the chief results of essential fatty acid deficiency. The observed appearance of pentainoic acid, or EPA, in kidney and blood after supplementation with with linolenate, or ALA, may be a result of impaired function of kidney tissue and may possibly be an abnormal synthesis." End quote. Several years later, Holman authored a paper with another colleague showing that rats synthesized plenty of EPA from ALA when they were fed a diet deficient in both EFA and vitamin B6. The ALA supplements made the EFA deficiency dermatitis worse in the absence of B6. When B6 was added to the diet, however, the ALA gave rise to less EPA and more DHA and no longer aggravated the dermatitis. The study also showed that vitamin B6 increases the conversion of linoleate to arachidinate and thus strongly argued that the activity of the enzyme delta-6 desaturase is, whether directly or indirectly, very tightly dependent on vitamin B6 status. Delta-6 desaturase or D6D is involved in the conversion of linoleate to arachidinate, ALA to EPA and EBA to DHA. Even in healthy people without any genetic decreases in D6D activity, an excess of linoleate would suppress the conversion of EPA to DHA. Linoleate would not only compete for the enzyme activity and win out because of its greater abundance, but like all PUFA, it would suppress the production of the enzyme itself. Studies supplementing humans with ALA labeled with radioactive tracers have suggested that EPA rather than DHA is the major product. These studies suffer from several flaws. They are conducted in humans consuming a massive excess of linoleate. They have mostly used very small amounts of ALA. They measure blood levels instead of tissue levels. And they do not take into account vitamin B6 status or any of the other variables that affect desaturase activity. The standard American diet is 6-7% to 7% PUFA, which is at least 15 times the required amount, and most of it is linoleate from vegetable oil. As argued above, the linoleate would depress the the production of DHA, especially if the dose of ALA is small and therefore less effective at competing for the enzymes. Most of these studies have used doses between 40 mg and 1 gram per day and shown only trace production of DHA and between 5-fold and 100-fold greater production of EPA. The one study that used 3.5 grams per day, however, showed that 3.8% of it was converted to DHA and less than twice as much was converted to EPA. Since DHA but not EPA is preferentially incorporated into tissues, measuring blood levels probably overestimates EPA and us- underestimates DHA. Finally, diets rich in biotin, calcium, and B6, and low in rancid oils and total PUFA would maximize the conversion of ALA and EPA to DHA. Much has been made of EPA's putative anti-inflammatory role, but this effect seems to be more of an interference with metabolism of the essential arachidinate than the performance of any essential role itself. Tissues use arachidinate to synthesize inflammatory prostaglandins and related molecules during the acute phase of inflammation and anti-inflammatory compounds during the resolution phase. Because it is a PUFA with the same number of carbon atoms, EPA competes with arachidonate for all of the essential enzymes that metabolize it. The prostaglandins made from EPA are generally weak or inert and thus less inflammatory. It makes little sense, however, that the body would require an essential compound just to make other compounds that do nothing. DHA, by contrast, is used to synthesize active mediators that participate in the resolution phase of inflammation. EPA only makes such compounds in the presence of aspirin. EPA is thus likely to simply be a byproduct of compromised DHA synthesis. Chris Masterjohn in 2022 coming in to say that there are also effects of gut bacteria that can make these pro-resolution compounds from EPA, but the point that I made in that sidebar remains. This is the end of the report. I hope you enjoyed it.